Amplifying Lies podcast. Thirteen, July seventh, year one. I've been riding for nearly three hours toward a column of smoke, going as slow. The freeway is a graveyard for thousands of cars, most of them abandoned, some of them occupied by their former owners. It's like an infinite river, mausoleums, every make and model. The repeated heat and cool of the season has had a mummifying effect on the corpse drivers. Unlike the carrion that I've been seeing lying out in the open, picked by birds, bugs, and scoundrels, I ride the embankments and the roadside forests rather than the pavement. I've been able to take some stretches of shoulder and even a few jaunts between lanes of traffic, but frequent wrecks force me to the sidelines. The freeway feels safe. I've seen a few undead moving about, but the on-the-road food supply seems scarce. They don't have any appetite for spoiled meat. I stopped to investigate an enormous third wheel. Previous owners had fixed the mobile home with a generator. I pried the door open and smelled death. Previous owner, a man of about 70, lay between two pilot's chairs, his chest torn open, most of his flesh chewed away. Someone else lay in a bed in the back of the vehicle, probably the man's wife. Before I could catch a glimpse of her that would haunt my nights, I shut the door and moved on. I rode the freeway a while longer and took Highway 83, headed north into a canyon pass toward the smoke. Hours of travel had only taken me 60 miles from the dumpster in which I had woken that morning. So much lookout, dodging and weaving. I turned the road's curves, winding my way down toward the valley. The signs said I was coming up on Farmingham. The little town lay at the base of a pass, the tip of an enormous dammed reservoir. From my vantage point, I could see the source of the smoke. Farmingham had an oil refinery. Someone was putting out the signal. People, I thought. I hoped the smoke was a sign of peace, not a warning to stay away. I made the valley, not able to help the excitement rising within me at the prospect of any kind of human interaction. I momentarily became careless. Something hit me hard from the side, causing my bike to fishtail. I'm sure if I was a more experienced rider, I could have pulled out of the tailspin, but as it was, I lost my center of gravity. The mind works like a runaway train prioritizing and cataloging at superhuman speed during duress. At the moment I lost control, a picture of my new Gibson came to me. I adjusted my body's positioning as I fell in such a way to protect the Gibson from harm. Somehow I managed to slow down enough during the crash to keep my wits and at least control the worst of the damage. The road peeled away my jeans and ground into my leg and hip, biting like a million teeth. My arms smeared into the turf, leaving a slur of puckered skin and blood on the pavement. I pushed up to my hands and knees in time to see an undead man standing above me with a broken tree limb and his raw hands, his jaw, hanging to an unnatural angle. They were using tools, not just tools. They were using weapons. Pushed over onto my bottom and skidded away. The undead man made an awkward swing at me, landing a glancing blow to my shin. It hurt, but it didn't break anything. I pushed up to my feet and away from him all at once. I scanned the area to ascertain what had happened. As far as I could reconstruct, the undead man had bushwhacked me from behind an SUV. Had he the sentience? 
to set a trap? If they were gaining intelligence, things were going to become a lot more complicated for us humans. I drew my Glock and aimed. I fired. Even at close range, I missed with my first shot. I swore under my breath. I couldn't afford to waste ammunition. Fixed my aim and put the undead man down with a second bullet. My bike lay in a mess. I wove my hands behind my neck looked up at the sky. Half of my body lay open with road rash and my skin hurt like hell. I looked ahead at the plume of smoke still rising from the refinery. I took a deep breath and moved out at a limping crawl. I wouldn't get ahead of myself and be caught off guard again. The undead bastards could think. They could use weapons. I had to stay alert. Thirteen, July 7th, Year 1. I'm tired. Last night I tried for a dumpster, but as I neared town, the number of walkers seemed overwhelming. I had to keep to the shadows and move methodically. I'm sitting at a desk in a locked-up abandoned split-level home. Before the dead started walking, this little community must have felt safe. I've learned not to trust my surroundings, so I worked my way from room to room, Glock in hand. I found no undead. Found no dead. Whoever lived here must have either fled or been changed while out and about. I locked back up and retreated to the master bedroom on the upper level. Though it felt nice to lay in a real bed, I felt restless throughout the night. The undead have no sense of time or seasons, they just wander. I heard them outside the house moaning and dragging their way through the brush. One of the things even banged on the front door for several minutes before giving up and shambling into the night. They couldn't get in, but I couldn't escape the image of the undead man with the askew jaw coming at me with his broken length of tree limb. They could use tools, I kept thinking. If they could use tools, they might find a way in. All they had to do was throw a rock through a window. I slept with my Glock on the headboard. I slept in snatches of little naps, although I lavished in the luxury of a queen-sized bed all by myself. found myself longing for a dumpster. I woke, went to the bathroom, and tried the faucet. No running water. I don't know what else I expected. Turned down service, perhaps? Pizza delivery? Damn, I miss the casual comforts. I went to the garage, hoping to find another motorcycle. An SUV hulked in the dusty light slanting in from the window. It was no motorcycle. I settled for a mountain bike I found hanging from the garage ceiling. I took it down from its hook and wheeled it to a man door cut into the side of the garage. I drew my Glock and cracked the door for a peek outside. One of them wandered under a grape arbor in the morning light, one yard over. A fence stood between it and me. I pushed open the door and wheeled the bike out into the morning sun. The thing under the grape arbor turned toward me as I exited the garage. It smelled rather than saw me. It moved on rusty hinges on its approach. The fence stopped it. It clawed and snorted, letting out angered grunts of frustration. I watched it struggle for a moment, shaking my head in sympathy at its failed state. I fixed the Gibson on my back and checked the locking strap to make sure the instrument was secure. I tucked my Glock into the rear of my waistband. I took a final look at the undead creature, one yard over. 
howling out its thirst for my flesh. I flipped the creature off. A useless gesture. I mounted the mountain bike and pushed off into the street. In another era, not long ago, I imagined the suburban street brimming with activity. I imagined kids playing pickup games of soccer, flying kites, and riding bikes and big wheels. I imagined mothers putting the finishing touches on dinners and calling children in to eat. I imagined fathers and mothers coming home from work and spending time with their kids, perhaps taking a moment to push them on swings or to engage in a spontaneous wrestling match in the front yard. I imagined a Saturday of washing cars. I heard the drone of lawnmowers and summer birds dressing the neighborhood with enchanted rhythms and songs. Those days were gone. Garbage strewed the street, tipped over cans of it, broken debris, papers, discarded toys, cars parked on the curbs, resting like hunching turtles, some with broken windows or open doors, their alarms long since exhausted, batteries dead, their hopes left to ruin, waiting for rust. I kept the plume of smoke in front of me as I rode, I gained progress, but as I neared the source of the smoke, I spotted more of them. I took back jogs through alleys. I walked my mountain bike over yards. In two cases, I pushed the bike through abandoned buildings. The closer I got to the refinery, the thicker the streets became with them. My progress slowed until I had to find cover. High ground. A place where I could survey the surroundings and make a plan. I entered a three-story bank building a few blocks away from the refinery and found my way to the roof. If there were humans in the refinery and, if they were putting out a smoke signal to draw other humans to them, the same signal had also attracted thousands of undead. Things swarmed around the refinery. They drew to within yards of the security fence surrounding the compound and stood, looking on, leaving a few yards between them and the chain link. I wondered why they weren't shoving each other up against the steel linkage. I sat on a parapet surrounding the roof my legs dangling over and watched. After nearly a half an hour, one of the things peeled out of the horde and stuttered to the fence. It reached with one of its pale hands and touched the wire. Its body stiffened in the current of electricity. I heard the power arching even from where I sat, two blocks away. I smiled. Humans must be inside the refinery. The compound's occupants had probably started the fires to signal others like me. Otherwise, they wouldn't have electrified the perimeter. They'd even managed to manufacture electricity. The refinery, with all of its food, had drawn thousands of undead, but those inside the compound didn't seem to care. Perhaps they thought of the onslaught of undead as a worthwhile risk and the prospect of drawing other humans into the compound. But the fact was, there was no way I could get to the refinery, not through the hordes of undead crushing around the electric fence. Even if I could get within shouting distance, without the things taking me down, I couldn't differentiate myself from the undead. To my supposed allies inside the compound, I would look just like another zombie, thirsty, looking for an opportunity to penetrate the perimeter and get at human flesh. Somehow, I had to get a message into the compound. I massaged my temples, closed my eyes. In the intensity of thought, I heard my stomach rumble. I didn't realize how hungry I had become. As I sat on the roof of the old bank, the sun scorching my skin. Damn, I wish I had stolen a hat. I thought back to a day in elementary school. My fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Fearson, had taken us all outside on September 21st, not long after the school year had started. 
It was the International Day of Peace. She sat us down on the ground and told us the sentiments of children expressed peace in its purest form. She gave us slips of paper and told us to write something that promoted peace. I still remember the sentence I wrote on that sheet of paper. I wish everyone would stop shooting each other and learn that we're all alike. Not exactly profound, but hey, I was eight years old. Mrs. Fearson marched us all to the playground where we met a man standing next to an enormous air tank. She gave us each a balloon and told us to roll up our messages and put them inside. We lined up behind the man. One by one, he took our balloons, filled them with helium, and gave them back to us. Soon, we all stood there on the playground, a flower patch of children holding colorful balloons. Mrs. Fearson gave a short speech about peace on earth, about how we should all learn to not judge each other, and how we all should learn to get along. After her speech, she had us all count down from ten. When we hit zero, we released our balloons. I will never forget all that color flying up into the sky. Red, white, blue, green, yellow, pink. I watched my balloon ascend, keeping my eyes on it until it disappeared into oblivion. As a child, I actually thought that we had sent our 20 or so balloons off on a mission, that our messages would do good in the world. As I reflected on my balloon flying up into the sky, an idea hit me. I could get a message into the compound, not with a balloon, but with something else. I'd seen a Walmart on the outskirts of town, and I was certain I could find what I needed there. I didn't have time to visit Walmart before nightfall. I decided to bed down in the old bank building. I found a secluded room with a lock, spread out my bedroll next to a voluminous executive desk. I locked up and slid the file cabinet in front of the door for good measure. Tomorrow was going to be rough. I needed sleep. I closed my eyes and tried to ignore the gnawing sense that the undead were all around the building, lurching through the streets. Perhaps some of them were onto my scent and gathering. I closed my eyes too tightly at first. I forced the pressure out and enlightened the intensity in my mind with a series of affirmations of indifference. I had taken on a new mantra, a sentence that had been flowing through my mind countless times on an almost hour-by-hour basis over the past few days. I am nothing in this world. I am impartial to life or death. I must have repeated this in my mind 50 times before I finally drifted off to sleep. Something you might find interesting about this story, I own several guitars. Every musician will tell you each guitar serves a different purpose. They're like tools in your tool chest. When I wrote the scene in the music store where Lance confronts a bunch of zombies, I wanted him to defend himself with a guitar. After all, we do call them axes. When selecting the right tool for the job, the obvious choice came to mind. If I was cornered by a bunch of zombies in a guitar store, I would absolutely pick up a B.C. Rich Warlock as my primary weapon. I even confirmed this with a couple of professional musician friends of mine after I wrote the story. I pinged my friend Rich Dixon, one of the best players I know. He's done sessions with everybody. He even played with the Osmonds back in their heyday when Donnie and Marie were as big as Bieber and Britney. I also reached out to my friend Jamie Glazier. He's a world-class jazz fusion guitarist. He's played with John Anderson, Chick Corea, John Petitucci, Dave Weckl, and many others. In fact, 
If you've ever watched Seinfeld, he's the guy who plays all of that great guitar stuff in the show. When I told Rich and Jamie that I had selected the B.C. Rich Warlock as the weapon of choice in my story for going up against zombies, they both enthusiastically agreed that I had chosen the right tool for the job. Now, the B.C. Rich Warlock isn't a great guitar. I've never enjoyed playing them. But, should you look them up online, I'm sure you two will agree that their sleek design is perfect for crushing in undead skulls. Even professional musicians recommend the B.C. Rich Warlock as their primary tool to fight zombies. For today's song, I thought I'd give you one of the original tunes I composed under the guise of Lance King. So don't think of this as a Craig Nibo tune. Think of it as a song written from the compound in the world of Mr. King. It's a little ditty called All of My Best Friends Are Zombies. Enjoy. Shun the dark. For no reason, leave your homes when dusk has fallen. Bolt your doors and burn it. Give this monster no opportunity and you are safe. Now, go to your home and guard yourself with light. I wish you could meet my friend Jack DeLong He really is quite a dandy He gets on with the women when he gets them alone He chews on their wrists and their handies Then there's Jeremy Parts who swims with the sharks He's a regular high-powered tycoon But you get him a drink and he'll go to the brink and he'll bite like a rabbit baboon 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 And all of my best friends are zombies And all of my confidants too And they live on the living around me and they chew, and they chew, and they chew. All of my best friends are zombies, and all of my confidants too. And they live on the living around me, and they chew, and they chew, and they chew. They chew. Come down to my party, I'll introduce you to Marty. He's a good-hearted soul all in all. But you say the word gore, he'll take you down to the floor. And he'll spread you from wall to wall to wall. 
Then there's little Dan Higgins who likes finger licking. He's a pip of a kind-hearted man. But don't wear cologne or you won't make it home. He'll make you wish you hit the fan. 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 And all of my best friends are zombies. And all of my confidants too. And they live on the living around me, and they chew and they chew and they chew. All of my best friends are zombies, and all of my confidants too. And they live on the living around me, and they chew and they chew and they chew. They chew. Have you met poor Clarice, whose face is Swiss cheese because somebody thought she was deadly? Well, she just wanted peace, and they shot her to pieces. But she lives on a diet of veggies. And there's my uncle Stan, who's a heck of a man in his mechanic's coveralls. For a taste of your hair, he'll fix your carburetor or bleed your brakes for a bite of your toes. Bleed your brakes for a bite of your toes. Bleed your brakes for a bite of your toes. Bleed your brakes for a bite of your toes. And all of my best friends are zombies, and all of my confidants too. And they live on the living around me, and they chew and they chew and they chew. All of my best friends are zombies, and all of my confidants too. And they live on the living around me, and they chew 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 and they chew. This has been the Terrifying Lies podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Today I wanted to tell you about an excellent band called Deer Hunter. That's spelled D-E-A-R, Hunter. A bit of a play on words. I've made no secret of the fact that I love concept albums, and these guys bring the goods. I first became acquainted with the band when I went to a Between the Buried and Me concert with my nephew and his college roommate. Sure, Between the Buried and Me rocked the house that night, but I found myself even more wrapped on the opening band, Deer Hunter. I couldn't hear their lyrics well in the boomy venue, but the band made it clear that they took their musical arrangements seriously. They reached out of the convention by using an interesting mix of musical styles, beats, and meters. I learned after the show that the Deer Hunter's first five albums tell one epic story. Now, 
how can it get cooler than that? Not only had they put together a concept album, they'd put together a concept album series. Their albums tell the life story of a man born around the turn of the 20th century. The kid's name is Deer Hunter, most likely named Hunter by his mother. The story outlines many highs and lows in Hunter's life. This multi-album epic concept not only features interesting lyrics, the whole thing unfolds over brilliant compositions. Don't think traditional prog. This is almost like listening to a long musical. If you haven't yet listened to The Deer Hunter, I recommend you pick up their first album. It's entitled Act One, The Lake South, The River North. By the way, The Deer Hunter has no idea that I'm pushing their work. I just love it so much that I enjoy spreading the word. Today, I plan to perform part two of three of the bloody journal of Lance King. To give this story a little context, when I first began my zombie sing-along project, before it spun out of control, I thought of releasing them as a collection of songs written under the guise of a fictional character. I took on the persona of Lance King, a man trapped in a compound during an undead apocalypse with nothing but a guitar and a cache of dwindling supplies. I even put up a website about it. I plan to shoot a series of videos from The Compound and put out journal entries from Lance's perspective. I called the whole project Zombie Singalong. The project failed, in a way, but the Zombie Singalong songs turned into three albums of music and narrative about the undead, which I've already referenced. One day, I decided to pull up Lance's incomplete journal from the zombiesingalong.com site and finish the story. The Bloody Journal of Lance King is the result. By the way, you can watch me as Lance King perform five of his zombie folk songs online. The songs are called Grandma, Come March With Us, Ship of Zombies, So Tender, and All of My Best Friends Are Zombies. Go to youtube.com slash to check them out. I now give you The Bloody Journal of Lance King, part two of three. It's morning. Here I am lying in a dumpster that should have been emptied a month ago, but last night my theory held true. In the midst of the stench, I remained unmolested by the undead. It's a funny thing. When I first dove into the dumpster last night, I thought there'd be no way to sleep in the midst of all that garbage. But one rises to the bar in desperate times. After only a few minutes, I became used to the stench. And after jockeying around amongst the trash, I found comfort and warmth. Within an hour, I drifted off, and not into the light, useless catnap snatches of sleep to which I have become accustomed. I have slept for over nine hours. I feel great. I don't know if it's because the stench of the dumpster has acted as a repellent to the undead, or if the foulness of the garbage has merely hidden my human scent, but I remain unharmed. I haven't so much as heard one of them shuffle by. I'm hoping that the now deeply seated fragrance will cloy. Maybe I can pass among them without drawing their attention, at least by their senses of smell. I'm not trying to impress anyone. I'm not going out on any dates anytime soon. 
For all I know, I'm the last living human on the face of the planet. So I plan to go out into the world smelling like rotting cabbage and fish guts. Hello, world. I'm headed for a guitar store today. I've never owned an axe any nicer than my mid-level Ibanez, which I left back at Warden. Be nice to move up to a high-end Martin or Paul Reed Smith. So it's out of the dumpster with me and back onto my ride. I'm hoping I'll be rocking out by dinner time tonight. If only I had a few friends to jam with. Oh well. I guess I'll have to be content as a solo act. Late afternoon. I have to admit, felt a little guilty as I threw a brick through the window at Wayne's Guard Music. All I have seen as I have ridden my motorcycle down the streets, sidewalks, alleys, and across vacant lots is broken windows, smashed windshields, shattered department store entranceways, shards of glass all over the place, winking the sun back into my eyes as I ride. Been careful to roll around the glass in order to avoid punctured tires, but as I stood there in front of the music store with a red brick, cocked back, ready to let fly, I took pause for a moment. Breaking and entering even in these circumstances goes against the nature of what I am. In a way, this gives me hope. Maybe there's a part of us, even after we have every excuse to debase ourselves to our most animalistic instincts, to be civil. I threw the brick. The window shattered. I kicked away a few shards of the stuff and stepped inside. The familiar smell of every guitar store. Polished and oiled wood, upholstery and leather, a hint of cigarette butt leftovers, hit me. I stood for a moment, eyes closed, just taking it in. Along my ride, I enter and leave patches of spoiled earth. In my mind, I call them dead zones. In dead zones, I smell bloated flesh crawling with maggots. There's nothing to do in dead zones but close off my nose, lean into my handlebars and push through. Wayne's Guard music felt like the opposite of a dead zone. The place welcomed me with its scent alone. It was almost like I forgot about the world's fall. In the middle of so much war and death, Wayne's Guard music felt like a neutral zone. When I took in racks upon racks of musical instruments, amplifier stacks, music stands, display cases of method and theory books, window cases of microphones, and autograph posters of rock stars, my eyes actually teared up. The place brought on such a swell of nostalgia, such a longing for the way things used to be, that my emotions threatened to overcome me. I found a chrome bar stool with a Fender logo printed on the seat and sat down. For a moment I didn't move, I just looked around, my hands shaking at the expanse of the place. Felt as though the building itself welcomed me. I almost heard it whisper in my ear, Lance, you belong here. Stay as long as you like. Take what you see. You are welcome to it all. I wandered to a rack of electric guitars. The bottom shelf held the cheap pot sellers, instruments for newbies. I used to teach private lessons before the world rolled up. Inevitably, parents asked what kind of guitar they should buy their young, aspiring rockers. I always advised that new players didn't have the experience to know a good guitar from a bad one. I advised parents to let their kids buy a guitar based on shape, color, and personality. Buying a guitar when you're a new player is more about seeing how it looks on you in a mirror than testing it for tone and action. The newbie guitars hung on the bottom row, painted in outlandish colors, cut like axes, devils, and flying Vs, every extreme shape, size, and demeanor. 
I ignored them and looked up at the top shelf stuff. I traced along the row of American Strats, Gibson Les Pauls, and SGs. All great guitars. My eyes stopped on a natural spruce Gibson Custom Super 400, hollow body, electric, saliva flowed. In another world, I could never afford such a guitar. The Super 400 Thin Line came in at no less than $13,000, but the instrument backed up every penny with tone and precision. I found a little two-step ladder and climbed up to where I could reach the instrument. I hooked it from the clip and brought it down. I sat on another bar stool, this one appropriately tagged with a Gibson logo, and strummed. I wished almost beyond reason that there were electricity to power one of the tube amps sitting right beside me. There was no hope of ever hearing the deep tone of the dual 57 classic humbucker pickups. But the tone of the spruce open body still caused the hair on the back of my neck to stand. When it comes to guitars, some require anger and sweat to play. It's almost like these types of instruments exude an attitude. I dare you to play me, you chump. Just try to get a good tone out of me. As a guitarist, I always feel like I have to put in double the effort to get even a reasonable sound from such a mean-spirited instrument. But the Gibson Super 400 Thin Line greeted me like an old friend. As I rested my fingers on the maple neck, the thing seemed to sigh at my touch. I strummed an A minor 7th chord to test it for feel, and everything in my body relaxed. I played, at first a few simple blues riffs, to get to know the neck. Gradually, I changed over to more complicated and enjoyable changes. Felt as though I and the guitar were on a team, and we were focused on shutting out all the stench and gore of the fallen world with our music. I sank into a fugue of playing. Only musicians understand this. How one can start simply, then explore, using chords, licks, and refrains as footsteps through a forest, a city, a mountain, a world of love, hate, and indifference. Before I knew it, I played for an hour, sometimes singing along, sometimes just sitting on that bar stool watching my hands work the strings. Being so ensconced in the musical world I had created, I became unaware of the danger around me. Something clattered near the entrance of the shop. I looked up to see a mob of undead coming at me. Too many to count. The world of music I had created crumbled all around me in discord. I stood and pushed the Gibson over onto my back where it hung, neck down. To my knowledge, the way I had come in was the only way out of Wayne's Guard music. Between me and the front door were nearly a score of undead. Their skin pale, their fists bunching up and slackening as they eyed me. I scrambled back, knocking a pair of newbie guitars from the rack to clatter on the floor. I was faster than them, but they were paring out into the store. I couldn't tell if they were deliberately attempting to flank me or if they were merely finding their own paths through the display cases, half stacks, and music stands. I drew the Glock 9mm from my waistband and fired. I hit the closest of them, a teenage kid wearing a Batman t-shirt in the chest after missing twice. The kid whipped around, the bullets impact, but then righted his course and kept coming. I kept firing. Finally, I dropped the kid in the Batman shirt and headshot after emptying most of the magazine. I fired the rest into another of the walkers, a woman with sunken cheeks, flaking makeup, and a rat's nest of graying hair. Out of four shots, I hit her once in the shoulder. The Glock dry-fired with a disparaging snap. I swore and tucked it into my waistband. I backed away from them, scrambling for anything I could use. I settled on a B.C. Rich Warlock. 
an appropriately evil-looking guitar sold to greenhorn players who are more concerned about looking goth than obtaining any kind of clean tone. I wielded the BC Rich like an axe, body up, head down. I took on batter's stance. No athlete. But I do remember the single baseball lesson I got from Coach Flint, my high school PE teacher. Cock your right elbow for maximum power. Lead with your left foot. Step into the swing. The woman's head crunched on impact. She swayed off kilter, took a few shuddering steps, and collapsed into a rack of pink heart-shaped acoustic guitars. More undead came at me. I batted them side to side, swing after swing, backing up as they came. They moved in lumbering steps, but there were a lot of them. The strain of my work tired my arms. I continued to back away, swinging with every step until I collided into a bank of bass guitars hanging from a set of wall hooks. One of them fell with a twang as the bass's head broke in half. I gasped and looked down at the broken instrument, relieved that it was just a squire jaguar. I went back into battle. The undead had backed me into a corner. I eyed the room beyond them as I punished them with blow after blow. I spotted a hallway about 15 feet off. With the entrance clogged by more undead entering Wayne's guard music, the hallway was my only escape. If it led to a dead end, I was finished. I could only hope for a rear exit. I smashed straight down into the head of an undead man wearing a chap's lumber hat, leveling him to the floor and began an oblong battle traversing along the wall of guitars toward the rear hallway. A rail of an undead man with barely 15 pounds of meat on his bones came at me hissing and swiping with a pair of claw-like hands. I ducked one of his blows but took the second swipe in the face. I felt lines of blood rise from a set of parallel scratch marks in my cheek. I opened my eye slowly, hoping I hadn't lost it and realized with great relief that I could still see. I jockeyed around a martial full stack, placing the amps and cabinet between me and the skinny undead man. I put my shoulder to the stack and pushed until it toppled over. I heard the slender man hiss and thump under the weight of the cabinets. I snapped to look down at him. He lay crushed under the stack, wriggling and trapped. I continued along the wall, slashing and stabbing with the BC Rich, pushing them away. I hooked one of them with the horn of the instrument's body and flung him into an entanglement of amplifiers, cords, and microphone stands. After a reckless but successful battle, I made it to the hallway on the back wall of the guitar store. I sprinted along the short corridor past three offices and two restrooms to a double door fixed with a push bar. I ignored the sign that said alarm will sound and pushed the bar. A tinny speaker mounted on the door rasped out a high-pitched chirpy cry. I must have run on batteries in case of a power outage. And what a power outage we were having. The alarm blasted my ears, but its effect even more impact on the undead coming down the hall toward me. The creatures stopped their advance and covered their ears with open palms, moaning and crying against the shrill rhythm of the exit door's piercing alarm. The door swung open into the rear parking lot of the place, dark and festooned with cars. I backed out onto the loading dock and let the door close behind me. I had forgotten myself. I had let the music store overtake me and hadn't stayed alert. That was a mistake I wouldn't make again. As I turned to leave the loading dock, I glanced into a large blue dumpster, a habit I had recently picked up. A handful of guitar shipping boxes and a few gig bag guitar cases lay strewn inside. I touched the Gibson, still hanging from my shoulder. 
I leaned into the dumpster and picked up one of the gig bags. As I left Wayne's guard behind me, I shoved my new prize into the case and reslung it over my shoulder. I found my motorcycle where I had left it in a handicapped parking place in front of the music store. I kicked the engine to life and rode out. It took me nearly two hours to find a dumpster with enough slime and filth to hide my scent. I leaned the Gibson hollow body against my motorcycle and climbed inside. I nestled down into the dreck and lied still. In time, my heart rate slowed down and I drifted off to sleep. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Break. 